Each year, Grattan Institute selects its best books of the past 12 months as recommended reading for the Prime Minister and all Australians over the summer holidays. As part of our podcast summer series, we've invited some of the authors to discuss these works on our podcast. Today, we have writer Ellen Van Nieven to discuss their book, Personal Score. Hi, and welcome to the Grattan Podcast, coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Dominic Jones, an associate in the health team, and with me is Esther Suckling, an associate in economic policy. With us today to discuss their latest release, Personal Score, is award-winning Wunanjali author, editor, and educator, Ellen Van Neven. Thanks so much for joining us, Ellen. Thanks so much for having me. Personal Score is, is a book about football and sport, but really it's, it's pretty remarkable in its breadth. You tackle everything from race and gender to climate change and health. And I understand that it was, it was years in the making. So I guess my first question for you is, is what were the big drivers for putting together such an expansive project? Yeah, this book did take a while to think about like what would be the best format for it, what would be the best mode. I'm someone who you know grew up really loving and playing sport and that was with me from a young age through the influence of my family both my dutch family and my aboriginal family and growing up in southeast queensland also what was with me from a very young age was also a love for writing and so having you know written fiction and poetry before there was just something that was telling me that I wanted to write about sport because it was such a big part in my life, such a big part of growing up. And I had a lot of strong memories, particularly from, you know, where I started playing football at the age of 11, particularly around that, like, 11 to maybe, like, 20, like, those, like, formative years playing, being part of teams, travelling, for sport I wanted to write those memories down and think about what they meant but I also wanted to think about sport in a broader context because we all have a relationship to sport in some way and I was really thinking about you know what it meant to play and to exercise and to train on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land and I was also thinking about just, you know, other, you know, intersections around race, gender, sexuality, and wanting to write, you know, an expansive book that, you know, couldn't cover everything, but, you know, at least tried to sort of cover the things that I was interested in. And then I thought that maybe other people were thinking about it as well. You mentioned about thinking about what it means to play sport on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land. One of the parts of the book quite early on that I found really interesting was when you talked about the long tradition of sport in Australia prior to colonisation and, and particularly the, the way that you contrasted that with non-Indigenous sport. Could you tell us a little bit more about that contrast? When we think about Indigenous athletes like, you know, amazing superstars of sport that we've grown up watching, we watch today, and we think about like indigenous connection to sport. It's actually part of a like a long continuance of playing sport on this land prior to colonization. 
And so, you know, I was thinking about the sports that, you know, have been played here, like Weme, the stone bowling game played on Arunda country, Wagabaliri, which is a round ball possum skin kicking game from Ngunnawal country. I think about those sports and their relationship to plays, the materi- materialities of country, and also their inclusivity. And yeah, very community focused. And I think those traditions of sport from an Indigenous perspective, the values of sport that we need to remember today and we certainly can't forget. And I really wanted to sort of, yeah, just really think about that that link from the past and the continuing past to where we are now as a nation that, you know, really prides itself as a sporting nation. Sport in Australia has this long history of being, you know, excluding certain people from playing, whether, you know, it's a long time after colonisation before there was any progress in, like, women playing sport here. It was really a very much like a middle-class pursuit as well. Yeah, it's just very different to how... I imagine my ancestors being on this country. And so sport in Australia has, you know, these issues around inclusion and also extraction, both from community and from place as well. And so I wanted to sort of think about sport in a more holistic way and imagine a future where there would be less barriers for people to play. For example, you know, something like racism is so prominent in sport unfortunately and still in 2023 and there's you know everyone seems to think that that's just part and parcel of sport but I wanted to sort of show that we can really think about it and we can we really it really has no place in sport. One thing I loved about your writing Ellen was the really vivid way that you describe the moments on the pitch. I think I started playing around 11 years as well and it resonated so much you talk about the ball being soft and ready at your feet you talk about what it feels like to be in that kind of tunnel vision in front of the goal and to call on something you just said before you also talk a lot about the place and the surroundings of any pitch you're playing on the animals the wildlife and I just wanted to give our listeners a sense of that amazing way that you describe the game and the place I was wondering if you might be able to share with us a memory of a highlight of your football or soccer life and also where were you, like what was going on around you at the time? Let me just try and think because yeah, when, when, you, when you were talking, I just had, I had a lot of memories yeah. come through. Flashing it's a through. very sensory thing to, yeah. to play football, to play any type of sport. Even just the smell of cut grass can just bring back a lot mm-hmm. of memories for me. I grew up in Queensland. We played in some really amazing places. A lot of them were quite, you know, bushy. Um, we would travel a lot. Yeah, I remember going to places like Bundaberg and Mackay for the first time and just being really taken by my surroundings as a young person and working out where I was. One of my favourite memories of playing and I think this maybe this is a little bit different from what you're expecting because it's maybe less sensory but it just came to mind and that was when 
I was playing for the Southside Eagles and we actually made a final against like our local rivals, Karina. And then the final was on the same night as I was asked to perform in the middle of, of Brisbane with the late Uncle Archie Roach. I was feeling incredibly grateful for that opportunity, but I felt like that there was a clash and I would have to choose between the two. That was my 20s, was thinking about starting to have these amazing opportunities as a writer, but feeling like they were potentially meaning that I had to miss training Mm. and games, which was such a constant for me more than anything, was it was a way that I grew up you know, around thinking about the match on the weekend, thinking about going to training, having that consistency, being with the team. Sometimes there's pressure to either be into sports or be into the arts. You can't be into both in certain circles. I think maybe now Melbourne does a really good job at potentially bridging that gap because it feels like everyone's, you know, into sport and can also go to an arts event yeah there's certain areas where you feel like you have to choose a camp and depending on what camp you choose you know there's this stereotype around the other you know that moment sticks to me because I managed to do both that night you know I had this this neighbor my neighbor Maria who took me to the theater I did my performance got to meet the wonderful Uncle Archie and you know, be on that stage. And then we, you know, we quickly got in the cars, getting all changed in the car, you know, no, you know what it's like getting, yeah. getting yeah. the gear no, on. Like, style. Absolutely. <laughs> Try and do it as like less awkwardly as possible. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, rocked up 10 minutes before kickoff, had a little jog around, saw the teammates. And, you know, we played our heart out on that, you know, it was kind of winter, so it was cooler night, kind of a bit of a damp field. And, yeah, we, we lost against the Karina Dolphins. They were the better team. But what sort of sticks st- sticks out to me is just, yeah, the commitment that I had to get there, but also the commitment with my team. You know, we played a really good game. Thanks for sharing that story, Alan. It seriously does remind me of that scene in Ben that like Beckham when she's at the wedding mm. of her brother and it just forget the game for halftime. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to follow up with one question there. You talk about kind of like the sensory aspect to football, which I really relate to and all the joy in playing. But something that comes through in your book quite a lot as well is the fear sometimes when oh. you're playing the game and one part that stuck out to me was the bike path section of your work which talks about a field that you were playing at and how nearby there had been this series of assaults of women who were running and moving every day by the same man and it reminded me of just to share one story from my playing times um, a few years ago uh, there was a really tragic murder of a woman in Melbourne called Eurydice Dixon. I don't know if you, but it was on the, exactly on the spot where I train every single Tuesday and Thursday and still do. And the period after that was just 
like trying to kind of reckon with the fear around being outside and just playing a sport when it felt dangerous just to walk to practice and back when I read that section it really evoked that for me and you beyond that you talk about you know being a queer person playing sport and some of the hostility on the pitch that you have experienced there and I'm just kind of wondering what has kept you coming back to playing in those times when it actually feels like playing can be this really scary experience or it can be quite hostile. It's really sad and really, yeah, just unfortunately a common experience for particularly women and gender diverse people in terms of thinking about their safety when they want to play a sport that they love or, you know, even, you know, my friend Laura who tells me that, you know, she used to run in the mornings but just had to stop because you know, having that harassment and also just feeling for her safety. Yeah, that's so unfortunate that we, you know, live in a society where women and gender diverse people don't feel safe participating in sport and exercising in, you know, any ways or even just have to make those considerations when they decide to, you know, to go out and, and play. I think maybe individual sports, I would maybe wouldn't have that motivation to keep going but having a team environment really helped and also just having people to you know talk to about that when I played for the Brunswick Zebras I had a very supportive team and that was around sexuality as well I think there were, you know when I was growing up you know being a queer person even before I really had the language to describe like who I was there was other people that were telling me who I was and potentially that a I didn't belong. So there was definitely team environments where this felt really, you know, scary to, you know, to be in, in environments where people might sort of say homophobic things or they might actually target you. And so when I was older, I felt very comfortable and safe and seen. So like my lovely team, the Buzzwigs ever is where I played for a couple of seasons. I think about how a beautiful natural environments where they might be, you know, what, what I talk about in, in the book around the bike paths, around the sort of mountainous area of near where I grew up, the bushwalks, the parks, these beautiful environments. It's really sad that because of the way that violence is, is gendered, that these places are so important and healing for us can also be places of fear. It kind of also goes to this like real colonial idea of places of country being somewhere that, that, that's fearful and, and, and scary where it's actually the other way around. Like we as people, we can cause much more harm to the natural environment than the natural environment can to us. And, and on that, the, the book was written sort of just in the lead up to the, the Women's World Cup this year. I think it felt like a very transformative time potentially for women's sport in Australia. Pubs and cafes across the country sort of being transformed into, you know, everyone knows every member of the, of the Matildas now. And I, I wonder whether you think that the World Cup was sort of the transformative moment that is building us in the right direction or, and what your experience of, of the World Cup was in that way talking to people that have been like around 
women's sport for a while, there's like two camps. Some people that just were just like, yeah, this is, this was everything and it was everything. But there's another group that have, you know, are very cynical around this, you know, just being a flash in the pan and seeing very like kind of more short-term progress and sort of seeing, you know, a fickle public that might turn their attention elsewhere now that we no longer have the the World Cup on home soil. I mean, what an amazing, you know, month it was in so many ways. And I had never experienced anything like that in my lifetime. The memories alone, I think, will sustain us for a while. But also, you know, there was definitely some structural progress that happened, maybe not enough in terms of a global perspective as well. You were having teams on the other side of things like Nigeria and Jamaica that weren't actually getting paid or had to sort of pay for their way to the tournament. There's definitely a long way to go, but absolutely the Matildas being such a, so recognisable and Sam Kerr just being so recognisable. There's really no other team that you would want to watch as, as much as them at the moment. And yeah, it's just been great to see. It's it's fantastic for those athletes because that's what they've been, you know, fighting for their whole life. You know, so someone like Sam Kerr, you know, sort of ask people ask her like, who were your role models growing up? She doesn't name female athletes, and that's just because there wasn't that visibility there. There wasn't that pathway there. We grew up with a lot of hope that those things will happen, but to have it now be the benchmark and for you know, the younger generation to know that, that that's something that they can actually make a career out of playing. It gives so much like hope for the next generation of athletes. But yeah, absolutely. There's still a long way to go in grassroots and community football and in other sports, as well as thinking about the stark contrast between how much, you know, money male athletes get compared to female athletes. Yeah, I'm interested in what is the right sphere for progress, as you say, is it mm. obviously the, this sort of representation on the world stage is, is incredible, mm. but do you see it as maybe more the, the grassroots club as being the fundamental level of, of change that will be, will be happening? I think it's equally important for... Um, a professional female athlete to feel that they're, you know, they're getting paid, that they have, you know, everything that that is on offer. They're not training in some sort of back of the clubhouse yeah. sort of situation where they have the potential to injure themselves or something. That they have everything on offer that a male athlete has, but it's equally important for that young person whatever gender they are, that they also feel like that they have support from their local club to achieve what they want to achieve. And putting those resources into the places that, you know, need it the most, whether it might be rural and remote communities, thinking about who has access to what they need and who I think just feel like, like you can do whatever you want, no matter who you are and where you are. I can literally think of like a hundred things going through my head as you're talking about, especially when you're talking about the World Cup. I just feel like there's so many different experiences and moments. Like, I don't know if afterwards you would just 
sit down with teammates or friends and you could just chat for hours about like this particular tackle, this goal, this game. <laughs> Most importantly, where were you at the Sam Kerr goal against the Lionesses? Oh my gosh, where was I? Yes, I do remember. That was so, what a goal what that was. Goal. So I experienced the World Cup sometimes in stadiums, sometimes yep. at home watching it and sometimes in the pub with mates. And that was a really, I don't know about you guys, but that was a really good spectrum to have. Yep. I think if I'm, you know, as much as the stadium experience was amazing, it was also so overwhelming. <laughs> so sometimes I just loved, you know, being at home, having sort of the ability to just, you know, be comfortable in front of yeah. the... the You're camp. at your most yeah. vulnerable in the, you know, 10th minute of the penalty shootout. So sometimes it's good to be to be in the stadium. Oh, my gosh. That penalty shootout. Yeah. Oh my I goodness. think that, you know, that Kerr goal was special. I mean, I was on the couch watching it that game. <laughs> I wouldn't have been sitting. I would have been standing and yelling. I think that Kerr goal was just amazing because, you know, we'd just been so obsessive about, you know, is is she going to play? Is she going to come on? We're missing her. Is the team, can the team, you know, cope without her, which they definitely showed that they could. You know, lots of people, lots of players stood up. I think they all handled it so well and Kerr just having that off-field presence as a captain, being very supportive. And then, so I was really happy for her to come on and make her impact in that goal will, will definitely be one of those goals that we will repeat. The score, not so much. I mean, I was so hoping that we could just at least beat I England. Know. And I was at the final England-Spain. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And yeah. that atmosphere that was, was crazy with that. And yeah. that, you know, obviously everything that also came out after the match as well. Oh. Like that yeah. That's a whole story in itself. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, definitely has an historic moment for sure. Thanks so much for, for joining us today, Ellen. I think I can speak for Esther and myself when we say we we, we love the book and we're mm-hmm. Really looking forward to hopefully lots of people getting their hands on it this summer and reading it by the beach in the absence of, of their football season. Thank you both so much. It was lovely to talk to you. For all the listeners, where can they get your hand, their hands on your book? Well, you can get your hands on this book, Personal Score, Sport, Culture and Identity, in Awkward Bookstores. It's published by the University of Queensland Press, which you can also have a look at. Uh, the UQP website. Fantastic. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can find the personal score and all the other books on the Prime Minister's reading list at our website, grattan.edu.au.